360. As you know, that is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut and one corner of New York, we are the UConn 360 team. My name is Tom Breen. I am your facilitator of sorts. And joining me as always are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, hello. Hi, everyone. Julie Bartuka. Happy December. And Ken Best. Ken, how are you doing? Belated happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, belated happy Thanksgiving. Hope everyone's holiday was as good as could be expected in this very strange time. Not going to say unprecedented time. I feel like that's overused. <laughs> that's been just beaten into the ground, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there was precedent over it, right? The 1918-1920 pandemic. That's true. But enough about that. We've got fun things to talk about. We've got exciting news happening around the university. Really, you've got some some entrepreneurship news. Yeah. From, out of the Worth Institute. Out of the Worth Institute. So the Peter J. Worth Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation is launching a program called Rocket Fuel. It's a pilot program that is going to help support first-year women entrepreneurs. So there's a notable gender gap in the business world. Only 3% of venture capital is allocated toward women-funded ventures. So women who want to pursue entrepreneurial passions have some hurdles to overcome. And the Worth Institute is putting some money and resources towards that. And uh, there's already a first cohort of some entrepreneurs that are going to be part of that program where they'll work on summer projects. Very cool. Yesterday, uh, President Casaleas and engineering professor Ki Chan were both named fellows of the National Association of Inventors. This is a very prestigious award, very prestigious designation. Uh, this is um, an organization that spotlights inventors in the academy, academic inventors whose work has led to tangible quality of life improvements in society. So congratulations, President Casaleas and Professor Chan. Um, and also, I just wanted to say, if you head over to UConn today, there's a, an interesting new dual degree program. The Journalism Department and the Agricultural and Resource Economics Department have teamed up to offer a dual degree program. Um, the idea being, A, that the people in the sciences need to get better at communicating what they do, and B, that journalists need in-depth knowledge uh, about important issues that they're going to cover. Uh, and there's been a lot of interest in the, uh, the among journalism students in uh, areas of you know food security and equity, the the uh, economics of food, and so this program will bring all that together, and we'll be training uh, a, a new cohort of journalists who will specialize in these issues and be able to bring important stories to the world. Very cool. So it's you know it's December. It's a it's a time when people like to give each other gifts for various reasons, and you know a great gift is music. A great gift, you know. At, Recorded music, that's always a fantastic gift, no matter the occasion. And Ken, you've got some news for us about some uh, some music recording uh, right here at UConn, is that right? Uh, yes, UConn's Grammy-winning composer has returned to the roots of his music with uh, his latest recording for the world's largest classical label. Point of Tranquility, Band Music of Kenneth Fuchs was released by Naxos several weeks ago, and it's a collaboration between Professor Fuchs and the United States Coast Guard Band. Professor Fuchs's earliest compositions, starting in high school, were for band ensembles of woodwinds, brass, and percussion in the tradition of military and marching bands. And the Coast Guard Band is a 55-member ensemble that's based at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy right here in Connecticut in New London making this a uniquely Connecticut collaboration. The Coast Guard Band makes its own recordings, performs around the world, and accompanies vocalists such as Marilyn Horn, Roberta Flack, and the Boys Choir of Harlem. The director of the Coast Guard Band is Commander Adam Williamson, whose instrument is the saxophone. 
Earlier this year, our multimedia colleagues Brett Eckert and Tom Reddick accompanied me to meet with Professor Fuchs and Commander Williamson for an interview that would become part of the Naxos promotional video for Point of Tranquility. How did this project come about between the Coast Guard Band and a Grammy-winning composer? In 2012, the Coast Guard Band performed my saxophone concerto, Rush, with their principal soloist, Greg Case. And it was at that time when I heard the band play so beautifully, I thought, maybe it's time to do a recording of my band music. And this is the band that I wanted to have do it. There has been a relationship between the Department of Music at UConn and the Coast Guard Band for several years now, right? That's that's correct. Yes, yeah. some of my some of my members are on faculty. They teach here at the university, and we have these two organizations that are just in such close proximity to each other. It's only natural that some professional relationship forms, of course. Band music is historically an important part of composing, a source of commissions and enjoyment for people almost from the beginning of the military bands. That's true, yeah. There's a there's a, a long history of commissions and military bands helping to propel the wind band music to the American public. And the Coast Guard Band is certainly involved in that as well. It's a, a passion of mine to perform American music. I've established a American Composers CD series. So, and actually, Ken Fuchs was the first CD that we put together. So his music was the first up for the series that we recorded. And uh, I remember being in the band. I was actually a performer in the band. I was a saxophonist in the band when we played Rush. And I just remember being fascinated by this music, just fascinated by, by your music. It was such a unique voice and something that I, I hadn't heard before for a band. I just, I hadn't experienced any kind of composition or musical writing or language like Ken's for band. And I was just fascinated. It was just compelling music. So when I was later named director and thinking, all right, what am I going to do with my time here? Where is my, my, you know, where's my passion going to take me? And recording American music was right at the forefront of that. And Ken immediately came mm -hmm. to mind and being so close and Ken having such a, a unique voice, it just, it all just made sense. I was very lucky when I was growing up to start writing for band first because Composing for, for band, in a way, is even more challenging for an aspiring composer, certainly, I think, than even orchestra, because of the particular nature of the instrumentation. We were talking about the importance of band music, and the band movement in the United States grew out of the British brass band tradition, and original music for an integrated wind ensemble of woodwinds, brass, and percussion really is, is a unique American contribution to music. And I'm very, very proud to uh, not only be part of it, but to have my music recorded by such an extraordinary ensemble. Thank you. Point of Tranquility was written for the Coast Guard Band. What does it mean to have something written specifically for your ensemble? I'm thrilled. Since I've been in this position, I haven't, I haven't had many works written. I haven't been on the front end of, of having works written. So I am so grateful that you wrote that for us. And, um, and again, it's just that musical language that you're able to 
to present or that world that you live in and capture on paper that is then captured by our amazing Coast Guard Band musicians. It was such a thrill and I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure how else to comment on that experience to get an original work from mm -hmm. Ken Fuchs that encapsulates all of that glorious sound that nobody else has <laughs> to be the first to look at those pages. Well, next to you. <laughs> I uh, to look at those pages. Point of Tranquility is a twin to Christina's world in a way. As I mentioned, Christina's world is inspired by magnificent painting by Andrew Wyeth. And Point of Tranquility is also inspired by a painting. In this case, it's an abstract expressionist uh, painting by the American Morris Lewis, who was a, an important figure in, in the color field movement of abstract expressionism in the, in the late 50s and early 60s. When I heard Adam's performance of Christina's World and was so moved by how that work resonates with him and how he brought it to life, I thought, I know what I want to write for you. I had been wanting to write a band work inspired by Point of Tranquility for a long time and a, a lot of things came together after I heard your performance of Christina's World and um, the beautiful abstract color shapes of his painting and I was thinking about the gorgeous location of the Coast Guard Academy right on the Thames River in New London. The thought of looking out to the horizon, that kind of point of tranquility, it all came together in my mind and that's that was really how the music started. It was a visual image and inspired by what I knew you could do with this kind of music. Again, this very transparent, coloristic orchestration that um, I, I knew Adam knew exactly what to do with it. Commander, when you're listening to music to make selections for your band, do you also listen to orchestral music to determine if you can adapt that for your group? Yes, all the time. <laughs> all the time. That is, of course, one of the joys of this position is just how much music you have the, the opportunity to consume. And then with always that, that little incentive, that little nugget of perhaps someday I'll get to perform this with, with my group. So yes, I'm always listening. I do venture quite a bit into the orchestral world quite a bit. I try to find the lesser known pieces and, and always in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, can this work for us? And sometimes it's pretty quick to get to know <laughs> on that because when you don't have strings, it's like, uh, I, I, just don't, I just don't see it. But other times we, I'll, I'll hear something and I'll, I'll say, yeah, you know what? I think, I think, that, could, I think that could work for us. Uh, and we have some arrangers on staff, and they're, of course, very interested in grabbing those orchestral scores and looking in, into the possibilities. So we've had a, a number of nice selections result from, from that. I always really, really greatly enjoy listening to, to other bands' works, uh, coming to the Yukon Band concerts, listening to the recordings that our sister services, the, our Department of Defense bands are putting out of uh, the university, universities across the country. There's, uh, there's a lot of really, really terrific music that's being written for band now. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really fantastic ensembles out there performing the music. So it's, it's an exciting time to be part of this wind band world when you have people like Ken writing music for us and the pool of 
of incredible composers that are out there that are writing for, for our medium. It's growing and it's becoming more diverse. We're just seeing a wealth of really amazing music come out for us. So it's an exciting time to be part of this, part of this group. So the next question would be, what is not there that you would like to have? What I would like to see more of, if I could give a message to composers all, all around, I would love to see more music for voice and band. That's a, that is a particularly challenging mm. combination to write for because winds get thick very easily without trying too hard. And voices, they're not generally able to cut through the sound of, of a band like they can often so easily, seemingly easily do with an orchestra. There is some very good music out there for voice and band, but I think that there's plenty of room for, for, for more on that front. So that's, that's certainly one of the works. Well, I'm going to get to work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll play it. <laughs> So there's been a good response to the recording, and uh, I don't know when they're going to be able to uh, perform it, but I know there are plans to uh, get out and, and do some uh, performances with the music. Very nice. It's great music. And of course, uh, Professor Fuchs is a big star at UConn, and we're, we're glad to have him. You know, earlier at the top of the show, Julie, by the way, top of the show, that's an industry term, folks. That means, <laughs> that means the beginning. You're such an insider. Yeah. <laughs> We talked about entrepreneurship, and that's a, an increasingly important part of life at universities, not just UConn. And you have a story that uh, features entrepreneurship in an interesting way. Tell us about that. So I spoke with a peer in the MBA program, uh, Donald Pendergast, who graduated this past May from the full-time MBA program. He's a Hartford resident, and he's been thinking for a long time about kind of helping small businesses and farmers and people that run things you might see at a farmer's market kind of connect, connect with more customers. So he participated in the Get Seated competition, which is a funding competition run by the Connecticut Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation here at UConn. And he was awarded some money there. And this fall, he launched Curated CT, which is sort of like a subscription box, but you order a box every month. And he started it in October, and you get a whole bunch of really great local products. So Cato Corner Farm Cheese, Ashlawn Coffee from Old Saybrook, Bread from Hartford Baking Company, Hog River Brewing Beer. And you get to have that all kind of packaged up, and they have these events where you go pick it up, and you meet the people who actually put it together and talk to Donald a little bit about how that happened. Donald Pendergast, a 2020 grad of the full-time MBA program, has always had an entrepreneurial itch. Even in his previous career in higher ed advancement, he was constantly thinking of ways to shake things up and pursued innovative ideas to help businesses on the side. Now an analyst with Seattle-based consulting firm Slalom, Pendergast says he's long had an interest in building community around small businesses, and in the past decade, he's explored different ways to embrace the buy-local movement and connect small businesses to each other to help them compete with big-box chains. In 2012, he started developing an idea to create a mobile app-based loyalty program that could be used among several small businesses. While he was a UConn MBA student, he started subscribing to CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, and noticed something at the farms and farmers markets he often visited on the weekends. One of the things that came across were farms who actually were selling not just their goods, but goods from other places. And it dawned on me that they were doing what 
I think I wanted to do was actually pulling together um, and, and bundling, if you will, around products that are, that are similar, that either complement each other or simply just maybe, in a sense, kind of what you find at the farmer's market. He also saw the need for farmers, artisans, and other makers to have more reliable revenue streams, as well as time to focus on growing and creating the goods that they're selling. If you are a farmer, that is your, your primary passion, your primary interest, and, and that's, that's great. You might have a little bit of bandwidth to help with sales. You may have a little bit of bandwidth to help with marketing, but you don't necessarily have the bandwidth to go and run around, go and find the next customer um, for somebody else. And in some cases, you know, artisans, makers, growers, they, they love, you know, the, the cherry pie that they make. Everyone loves their cherry pie. Uh, that's why they open their business. But they don't really have experience either running that business or running a sales operation or knowing how to market themselves or really knowing how to grow their business. And so, uh, you know, on numerous occasions, numerous, you know, customer discovery interviews, um, that's what we saw. We saw business owners that, that knew how to make their thing, um, but didn't know how necessarily how to go about finding more people to sell to. And instead, you know, this hope and pray method of, hey, if I get into that farmer's market on Sunday, I, I'll pay a fee to be there. I'll bring 50 bags of my stuff. And I will hope that the weather's good, that people are there, and that they're interested in buying from me. He started thinking about what he initially called Farmbox, which has evolved into curated CT, launched as a pilot program in October. It's, it really comes down to making this buy local movement easy. If I had to go back to that sort of like cliched Silicon Valley formula, it's sort of Trunk Club meets Connecticut Magazine. I tell people to stop living vicariously through the Food Network and reading things about that really cool ice cream parlor down the street. Go and experience it. And so this is really about allowing people the time to do that. It's also a great way for small businesses to get promoted, to have a new sales channel, a new platform to sell their products, and really a chance to hopefully, if all goes well, have a reliable recurring revenue source. So this is really about how can we promote small business? How can we make it easy for people to experience those things, have those local moments and make it worthwhile for the small business to exist. The strategy here and the the uh, intention behind this is to really strike a balance between what people call convenience and also this interest and need that people have to maintain the social aspect of shopping. Mm. There's a reason we enjoy it, those of us that do, going to farmer's markets. There's a reason you enjoy talking to the person who's maybe putting some, you know, fresh produce or a candle or a freshly baked loaf of bread into, into your bag, you get to talk to them. You know, they either made it for you. They work for the person who made it for you. They're, they're, they're involved in the process and there's a relationship you get to build there. Relationships and connections like the ones he made at UConn are the reasons his idea became a reality. Pendergast says. I don't know that I was thinking about curated CT when I got to UConn. I was intentional about 
getting into the startup scene and the entrepreneurship mm-hmm. scene at UConn, which I was familiar with and very excited to engage with. Um, and it wasn't until a classmate of mine, Shelby, uh, asked me if I was going to be pitching in the Get Seated event through the CCEI, the Connecticut Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And I had no idea what she was talking about. So sure enough, got the flyer, looked it up. And initially I started helping her with her idea. She also pitched in the event uh, and was successful. She pointed out to me that I had my own idea. I need to run with it. <laughs> that's where Curated CT really got its start um, and, and pitching at Get Seated. And uh, through that event, receiving not only the, the $1,000 prize from, from pitching, but also getting a lot of positive feedback, which was really scary to get. I was expecting, oh, nice idea, but. <laughs> and, and I would sum up the feedback I got that night as just go do it. The only thing standing in his way was himself. Thankfully, he connected with a few helpful and encouraging peers in the MBA program, as well as staff at CCEI, who provided the push he needed. I I have to thank Jen Murphy in the CCEI. She has been such a terrific friend uh, through this, someone I can talk to, someone that has been willing to brainstorm and think and be a critic and really guide me through some of the the, the process and put some structure around the thinking as we've come up with this. Um, And not only was that true when I was a student for two years, uh, but since then uh, we've kept in touch. Um, It is the CCEI continues to be something that is beneficial to me as an entrepreneur, to me as an alumnus and is also something that I can give back to UConn students through. Like just about everything else, Curated CT was impacted by the pandemic. But after months of isolation and shutdowns, the sense of community baked into the business is even more needed now, Pendergast says. There was a lot of work put in for sure while I still was a student. And when we went to remote learning and remote working in the spring of 2020, I think I was at a point where I really wanted to launch, but wasn't quite sure how that was going to work. And one of the things that we're taking advantage of in partnering with small business is leveraging their physical locations. So this first box as part of this pilot and hopefully beyond the pickup actually happens at Hog River Brewery in the Parkville neighborhood in Hartford. So when everything got shut down, it was a real question of where is that pickup event going to be? No doubt I could still contact vendors and bakers and cheesemakers and and the chocolatiers and things. Um, But but how's that going to work? There was a lot going on. And fortunately, uh, I think a lot of a lot of what we identified a year and a half ago, a year ago, um, still rings true today. And there's even arguably a bigger need for this now. Um, and if nothing else, a big need just to have some sense of of community. I think that's been one of the biggest outcomes. I mean, I, I can safely say that if Curious CT um, 
is ultimately unsuccessful beyond this. It has been such a wonderful opportunity to connect with new people, uh, reconnect with old familiar faces in, in the Hartford area. Um, it's, it's, it's been pretty awesome. And you can find Curated CT online at curatedct.com. And the next box is going to be ready for pickup on December 18th. And you have just a couple more days till December 11th to order that. Very nice. Definitely do that, folks, if you're interested. It is December, as I've been saying many, many times throughout the show. And at uh, UConn stores, December typically, not this year, but typically would bring the uh, daily campus banquet reception for the, the staff of the student newspaper, student newspaper with deep roots in UConn going back to 1896. I remember one of my banquets when I was a staffer there, a UConn president, who I won't name, uh, dropped by, downed three glasses of scotch, shook some hands, and left. <laughs> we, we were all very impressed. It was like four in the afternoon, too. So, you know. That was, you know they can figure that out. <laughs> that's an excellent story. Yeah, we can, we can look up who that was. I went to UConn in the 30s. It was Albert right. Jorgensen. Yep. Mm-hmm. But most people know the Daily Campus is located uh, over on Dog Lane, and a, a building that was actually built uh, entirely uh, funded with Daily Campus money. The building cost $350,000, and it was paid for entirely by the newspaper, which was very impressive. But hmm. do you know where the Daily Campus was located before that building? Uh, the Student Union? Yes, but not immediately before. Ooh. I don't know. There was a house where the current Daily Campus building is now, uh, a Glendale model Sears prefabricated house. Oh, so cool. Uh, I love those. That had been purchased by one John N. Fitz, who uh, worked at UConn in the early 20th century, and he was, coincidentally, the first business manager of the student paper. But he did not buy the house for the student newspaper. He bought it and assembled it himself to provide housing for students, housing and sort of refreshment spaces for students when they were working on the farm, because that's... Back then, that was pretty much the majority of activity on campus was farm work. In what year? This was uh, the first decade of the 20th century, so like sometime between 1900 and 1910. This became known as the Fitz Merrill House, and it was bought by the university in 1920. And it had a variety of purposes over the years. It was a sorority house in the 1930s. It was housing for staff members in the 1960s. Food services, dining services workers lived there during the 1970s. Finally, in 1982... Daily Campus, which at the time was the Connecticut Daily Campus, moved from their location in the Student Union into the Fitz Merrill House. Daily Campus article from 1990 about it quotes the then business manager Lois McLean as saying, it was really a slum. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't mince words. She did not mince words. But apparently the people who, who uh, worked there between 1982 and 1991 had very fond memories of it. And a lot of Daily Campus firsts happened there. For example, the first staff photos were taken in front of the house. They, I guess they didn't take staff photos before then. That was a venerable tradition of the Daily Campus when I worked there. Um, and the house was torn down in February of 1991 to make way for the, the current Daily Campus building. So I have some photos of the old building, and I'll post them online at the main underscore old Twitter account. But I had no idea there was this kind of house where they all worked. It, I mean, it looks like the building in Animal House, honestly, and I'm sure it kind of, <laughs> I'm sure, sure it kind of was like the <laughs> Animal House. A neat little uh, fragment of Yukon history. Um, that is a nice little uh, tidbit. I did not know that either. That location is behind where our offices used to be, the mm -hmm. old publications building. That's right. Where I first uh, started working. And that had 
previous history as well. It used to be a gymnasium because there was a gym floor underneath the carpeting that was there, and it used to be the co-op at one point previously. A lot of the older buildings on campus have had many different purposes over the years. I mean, that was sort of the necessity. Um, UConn, uh, before we, we got the ability to sell our own bonds and raise our own money and have our own building projects, necessity was the mother invention. And so uh, we had to repurpose, you know, uh, uh, use it up, wear it out kind of philosophy for our buildings. <laughs> and the publications building certainly uh, yes. <laughs> fit under that. <laughs> and, and our current current location, if we ever get back to it, uh, used to be the visiting faculty dormitories. I know. I was thinking maybe they'll turn it into apartments again. Who knows? It was also a daycare for uh, faculty children at one point. Huh. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I can't wait to see those pictures. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening this week. Um, by the time you hear this, I believe it'll be finals week. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. So good luck on finals, everybody who's taking finals. And if you want more of this content, and my God, why wouldn't you want more of this content? You can find us on Twitter.com, uh, at Yukon Podcast, or at main underscore old if you want to see pictures of an old Sears prefab Glendale model house. <laughs> uh, and you can follow me uh, at TJ Breen. And of course, always check out today.yukon.edu for the latest in Yukon news. Tyler, is there anything you want to tell the people of listener land? I run the Yukon uh, FASA Instagram account. Um, that's the Yukon Filipino American Student Association. So if you're interested in that at all, check that out. Julie, how about you? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter, and that's about it. Ken, how's the TikTok going? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm not there. <laughs> you keep perpetuating this myth. He's still on Vine. <laughs> the only one. I wasn't on that either. Well, Saturdays from 3 to 6, 91.7 WHUS in stores, you can sound alternative. Streaming online at whus.org. And of course, Fridays at 11, the rebroadcast of this podcast uh, from the past. We, we have select editions that we uh, sometimes bring out and dust off. Uh, we're set through the end of December. We have to get going on the others. And I'm about to begin on the special holiday music project for WHUS that I'm going to put together. I, I literally have all these Don't discs. Don't forget my song. It's already scheduled. It's already <laughs> scheduled. I wrote the playlist. I got tons of my CDs right on this table in front of me. That's real old school, Ken. Well, it works. It's the only way we can do it. We upload on Thursdays. Listen for all that, folks, and um, be safe, be well, and we'll uh, let's talk again in two weeks.